0: Underneath the ancient canopy live millenniums of diversity, and they speak to each other a new language discovered but soon to be clear cut away. Clear cut away into hectares of port. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is February 1st, 2018, and this is episode 71. Politicoast is your West Coast BC politics podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you found us. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at, Pod, and support the show at patreon.com slash politicoast. I'm Ian Bushfield, and I'm flying solo this week as Scott's off skiing at Mount Washington. This week's music is Once You Know by Michael Averill. You can find his music at michaelaverill.com, and the link will be in our show notes. Happy Black History Month. Here's a recommendation. Go listen to the Rosemary Brown shout-out episode of the pretty cool podcast, Secret Life of Canada. The link will be in our show notes, but they talk about the first black woman elected as MLA here in BC. There's actually a park right near where I live named after her. Today's a special episode, as I'm recording by myself. I'm honoured this weekend in that I get to play the lieutenant governor with the Vancouver Youth Parliament. So in advance of that, I'm going to talk with Ranil Prasad, from the Vancouver Youth Parliament to find out what exactly that is and what issues they're hoping to debate. But first, I have to thank our premier sponsors, Lindsay Tedds and Blake Hodson for helping make this show possible. Sitting down with Ranil Prasad from the Vancouver Youth Parliament. Thanks for joining us on Politicoast. Yeah, thank you for having me. So Ranil, what is the Vancouver Youth Parliament?
1: So the Vancouver Youth Parliament is a project of the British Columbia Youth Parliament. And uh, to advance our goal of having youth more educated about politics and know more about Westminster democracy, we hold sort of little uh, British Columbia Youth Parliaments. So the British Columbia Youth Parliament meets every year. We sit in the actual BC legislature and debate actual issues. But we host a sort of training ground for high school students. And we host them all across the province in the North Shore, in the southern interior, the island, northern BC, uh, lower mainland east, which is essentially... um Uh, East of Surrey. Uh, We host them all across the province, and it's for youth ages uh, 14 to 18. So if you know any youth who are aged 14 to 18 who live uh, anywhere else in the province and would want to attend a regional youth parliament, uh, be sure to let them know.
0: I see you're wearing a sweater that says the 89th cabinet, so I take it it's not a new thing.
1: It's not a new thing, no. The British Columbia Youth Parliament was founded uh, in the 1920s. Uh, essentially, um, a group of uh, a group of men wanted uh, Christian boys to have a, a place to talk and discuss their issues. Uh, so it was originally found as the Older Boys Parliament. But uh, when the NDP were elected in BC in the 1970s, they said, hey, if you want to continue using the legislature, you're going to have to start uh, admitting female members. Uh, This is actually the first year that uh, the British Columbia Youth Parliament has accepted uh, female members longer than they've been left out of the organization.
0: That's good. So, the Vancouver Parliament here is this weekend, right, starting tomorrow evening. What will happen at that? What will people see? What will the students who attend be doing?
1: Yeah, so they'll be debating issues of uh, local, national, and international importance. So we have a number of sort of local issues that they're going to be debating. They're going to be debating uh, whether or not they want increased distribution of Narcan over uh, injectables. Uh, They're going to be debating um, something that's really close to home for a lot of people. Uh, The Vancouver Youth Parliament has a great uh, Chinese-Canadian representation. And they're going to be debating whether or not shark fins should be banned in the three municipalities that make up uh, the Vancouver Youth Parliament. And uh, also debating some student issues. Uh, Someone is bringing forward a private members bill on uh, students being allowed to to, uh, listen to music during tests.
0: So the students are representing parties. Are they arranged in the similar seat distribution as the BC legislature, or is it done by elections?
1: Yeah, so uh, every year we take um, a certain number of applicants and uh, we look over their applications. But the thing about uh, the British Columbia Youth Parliament and all the other projects we run, including VYP, is that we all sit as independent. So there's a government side and there's an opposition side, but everyone's feel to vote, free to vote however that however they want, and uh, there's no uh, whip going around telling you have to vote or us out of caucus because there's no caucus.
0: And so you mentioned these issues they're bringing forward, and I saw on your website earlier or on your Twitter actually that this is the most applications you've ever had. So who are these students? Like what is making high school kids want to get involved in this kind of thing?
1: Yeah. So I think one of the big things is that we just had a really, uh, a really big BC election. Everyone knew that this, the election, whether the NDP or whether the Liberals or whether the Greens would have won, was going to be groundbreaking. And uh, that's sort of, I've noticed, gotten people more into politics, and uh, uh, the BC legislature has been in the news more, and the lieutenant governor has been uh, in the news more, so I think youth are sort of noticing politics more than they used to. Uh, Another thing is that we've just been better at recruiting this time. Uh, We've had a lot of supportive teachers from Vancouver, Richmond, and Delta. Um, Our leader of the opposition and premier, who are actually currently in a cabinet meeting and aren't able to come, uh, did a lot of pressuring of their friends to come. We've been to youth volunteer fairs, Uh, so this is going to be a fantastic event. It's one of the it is the largest regional youth parliament that we've ever held uh, in the thirty one years we've ever uh, run these projects. So it'll be a fantastic event.
0: When did you get involved personally?
1: Yeah, so I got involved uh, three years ago. Um, I was just, I literally Googled youth service opportunities, and there was a big list that showed up, and I saw parliament. And uh, I grew up, uh, my parents were, like, yell the tv types. <laughs> so they'd turn on power and politics, they'd turn on the national, and just yell at the TV for half an hour, or an hour. And uh, that's sort of what got me into politics, and why I'm studying political science now. So I just, the youth parliament was just a natural fit for me. So
0: the, I guess, bias and the reason... I invited you on, maybe, is because you did ask me to be the lieutenant governor of this youth parliament. What do I have to do?
1: Yeah, uh, so you're essentially going to be replicating the actions of our uh, current lieutenant governor. So you'll be giving royal assent to bills, and you'll be reading the prorogation speech and the speech from the throne, uh, which members will vote on and see if they um, uh, will accept or not.
0: And if the government falls, do I have to spend the time figuring out who's the new government, or is it going to hopefully not come to that.
1: Uh, There's actually a standing order that prevents the government from falling. Uh, I think it's there for good reasons.
0: (laughs) For the context of the youth parliament, it probably makes sense to keep things going rather than leave it to some random person. to Uh, thing. That's great. Well, you're telling me about some of the guests you're having this weekend as well. It sounds like you managed to recruit quite a few people from across the political spectrum.
1: Yeah, we have a number of fantastic guests. Uh, we have the Lieutenant Governor coming, uh, the Honorable Judith Gishon. Uh, those of you who are following along at home uh, knew that she denied Christy Clark an election. Uh, so she's really been in the news and uh, she's actually ending her term very soon. So she's trying to get to as many events as possible. And uh, she's actually coming from her house on the island to to the Vancouver Youth Parliament and then going back in the evening. So she's coming over just for us, which we're very happy about. Uh, she actually gives patronage to the to the British Columbia Youth Parliament. Uh, we also have uh, a couple of guests who are uh, giving video greetings. So we have Andrew Wilkinson, uh, the former Attorney General of British Columbia. Uh, we have Heather King, who's a Delta City councillor, giving verbal uh, giving um, video greetings, and we have a lot of uh, sort of out of left field guests. So we have, uh, her honor has uh, an aide-de-camp who acts as her security when she comes to events. And he's actually a secret service agent. Uh, so he'll be coming talking about his job in the secret service. Uh, he'll talk about being aide-de-camp. And we also have another, uh, a number of like regular politicians coming. Uh, we have Morgan Auger, a prominent trans activist and an NDP candidate in the past. Uh, we have Michael Lee who ran who ran for the BC Liberal Leadership. And we have Don Davies, who's uh, been a supporter of Youth Parliament and other model parliaments and uh, represents Vancouver Kingsway.
0: That's fantastic. So it starts tomorrow evening, runs through Sunday kind of constantly?
1: It runs uh, constantly, yeah. So uh, unfortunately, the kids will have to get up and be uh, at UBC by 8 or 9 a.m. It'll be tough for me, probably tougher for them.
0: They have to spend their whole weekend, and it's the middle of the school year. It's not like they get time off for this, I imagine.
1: Uh, so this the, the thing about recruitment for a youth parliament event especially is that you the people who come to youth parliament events are really special in that uh, they have a passion for democracy, passion for the Westminster system. And they just really want to get involved politically. They want to make change. And uh, this is sort of a training ground to build future leaders and future politicians.
0: So you mentioned some of the issues that they're going to be debating, shark fins and Narcan uh, distribution, Who chose those? Where did they, why those issues and why not housing or something else?
1: Yeah, so uh, those issues are actually all private members bills. And uh, anyone can bring forward a private members bill, the Vancouver Youth Parliament. Uh, You don't have to be from the government, you don't have to be from the opposition or on cabinet as it would be. Anyone can uh, put forward uh, to debate uh, any bill they want as long as the House supports them.
0: So it's students who basically say, here's my proposal, let's debate it. Yeah, definitely. That's really cool. In the past, have there been any memorable controversies that have come up, either at the Vancouver Youth Parliament or BC Parliaments that you've been involved in?
1: Yeah, uh, so the, sort of the best private members' bills are ones that aren't serious. Uh, so we had one uh, in support of the colonization of the moon uh, at the 86th British Columbia Youth Parliament. We talked about whether uh, cuddling was good for you or not in, in my first year of the Vancouver Youth Parliament. So a lot of them, uh, a, a lot of private members' bills require a lot of of special research, per se, like, not everyone could talk about the Kinder Morgan pipeline or the Sightsea dam, but pretty much everyone can talk about colonization of the moon. So uh, that sort of brings people who aren't as engaged uh, into um, debating um, these issues.
0: And it's more about the skill of debating and working within the Westminster system than the actual issue, I imagine, for what you're trying to get out of it.
1: Yeah, a lot of it's about uh, teaching parliamentary procedure. So uh, if you have a private member's bill and you disagree with a clause, then it's always good uh, to know how to make a motion, especially if you're going to grow up to be a proper adult and have to make motions in Roberts' rules and whatnot. And knowing parliamentary procedure is, I argue, and I'm biased in this fact, is that it's very, very important. It makes uh, listening to things in the House of Commons much more interesting and sort of knowing what's going on behind the scenes. Are there any famous alumni to come out of the BC Youth Parliament? Uh, There's a number of famous alumni. Uh, So we have one out of uh, nine Supreme Court justices. We have uh, Justice Russell Brown, who is a member and who uh, was, I think, Speaker of the British Columbia Youth Parliament and was a a member as well. Uh, We have the current Assistant Deputy Speaker and former Speaker of the House, uh, Linda Reed, who's uh, an alumnus and who's also the mother of the current Deputy Premier. Uh, The thing about Youth Parliament is that um, it's been around for so long So we have people who were born into youth parliament, uh, and their parents did youth parliament, their parents did youth parliament. Uh, Other alumni, we have a lot of alumni who are very professionally successful, not necessarily politically. Uh, The current head of the Canadian Bar Association is an alumnus, and the current head of the BC Bar Association is also president.
0: So it's kind of people who tend to go into law or politics, but could be anyone.
1: Yeah, so we have... uh, We've I've, I've noticed uh, specifically that we've had less and less um, political science majors come through our, our chamber recently. Uh, I'm a uh, political science major out at UBC, which was sort of the standard youth parliament degree for a really long time. But now we've had more engineers, more people studying computer sciences, uh, way more diversity in youth parliament. And uh, as an alumnus would tell you, uh, what the BC legislature needs is not more lawyers, not more doctors. We need more bricklayers.
0: As long as there still are people working in trades, we definitely need them represented, right? Definitely. So you mentioned the diversity in that it was in the 70s when women were first allowed into the parliaments. How is it looking these days? Is it still more male-dominated or is it good gender split?
1: Uh, I've actually done the research on this. I've done a, a sort of an independent uh, sort of audit of our demographics. And the uh, cabinet of the British Columbia Youth Parliament actually represents the membership uh, with a difference of less than 1%. So we represent uh, women very well. We represent people of color very well. We have good indigenous, um, a good amount of indigenous members. Uh, so we really represent British Columbia pretty much on the dot. That's
0: fantastic to hear. And it's a good way to make sure that people get inspired, especially people who wouldn't normally see themselves in politics, to get inspired and see themselves in it, even if it's at the sort of less lower stakes scale.
1: Yeah, definitely. Like I've noticed that whenever I speak in the BC legislature uh, as a member of uh, the BC Youth Parliament, it doesn't feel like I'm a member of the BC Youth Parliament. It feels like I'm doing something bigger than I actually am, which I hope everyone, women, people of color, indigenous people, um, everyone has uh, the opportunity to do.
0: Who supports the BC youth, par- youth Parliament? How are you funded?
1: How are we funded? Uh, so we actually do all of our own fundraising. So we're a registered charity uh, in British Columbia. And uh, we have a board of directors, and uh, they're sort of our adult supervision. Uh, But we do all our own fundraising. We have a charity gala that we we hold every year that um, alumni, um, politicians, and just supporters of Westminster democracy and parliamentary system come out to. And obviously, our members show up as well. Uh, We do all the fundraising, that fundraising types you can imagine. We do samosa sales and freezy sales, and we sell Krispy Kreme donuts. And all of that is sort of to, to fund ourselves. And we also uh, run other more charitable projects. Uh, We have this project that we run every year called Camp Phoenix. And um, it's actually an act that we legislate every year. It's called the Camp Phoenix Act that we talk about in the BC legislature. And it's an act to hold a uh, summer camp for kids who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. So there's sort of two types of people uh, in youth parliament. There's people who are really parliamentary geeks who come in and want to learn how to write motions and yell at each other. And then I've noticed over time, as people age through the organization, they become more service-oriented. So they want to see those kids go to summer camp. They want to see more kids uh, go to youth parliament events, uh, especially regional youth parliaments.
0: That's great. Well, where can people find out more about Vancouver Youth Parliament, BC Youth Parliament, and you?
1: So you can find more about BC Youth Parliament at www.bcyp.org. We put a lot of new effort into our new website, and it's uh, looking quite nice now. And you can follow us on Twitter at BCY Parliament and on Facebook at BCY Parliament.
0: All right. Well, thank you for coming and talking about this. I look forward to (laughs) lieutenant-governoring.
1: And I look forward to all your royal assent. Thank you. Thank you.
0: And next, I want to do a quick segment by myself. Hashtag Me Too, Too. This week, we follow up on the main story we talked about last week with Aaron Rennie here in the Politico studio, where we talked about the string, it seemed, of Canadian politicians stepping down after sexual harassment allegations. Well, this week, things didn't slow down much more. First off, Elizabeth May, leader of the Green Party, was accused by three former employees, not of sexual harassment, but of creating a toxic work environment and being essentially a workplace bully. May denies those allegations, and CBC even spoke to a few other employees who said they were overblown, but they are serious. And May has asked the Green Party's executive director to run an independent inquiry, and they've appointed a law firm from Toronto to do a sort of two to four week investigation into these allegations. Meanwhile, things haven't gotten much better for the Ontario PCs. Party President Rick Dijkstra, almost right after we recorded, had to resign after separate allegations emerged about him. The other probably bad news for them is that Doug Ford, of all people, put his name forward as potential leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservatives, and nothing says stepping away from the toxic masculinity like a Ford brother. Not that there's any outstanding allegations against him. It just doesn't pass the smell test in my mind. Nevertheless, the usual suspects among the Canadian columnariat are coming out in defense of these men, people like Christy Blatchford, of course, and Rosie DeMano, I guess, in the Toronto Star, saying, where was due process? Where was all of this? And it's nothing new. It's what we talked about with Aaron, where, yes, there is a process here. These people were investigated internally, especially in Nova Scotia. And CTV did its work in talking to these women. And these weren't anonymous sources. These were confidential. These were people who came forward. CTV checked out their story and looked at multiple other sources. No one's gone to jail. They've just faced some professional consequences for their alleged actions. But to really show that no party is above the fray, the New Democrats just today suspended Saskatchewan MP Aaron Weir Following harassment allegations, leader Jagmeet Singh has called for an investigation, and he's said that he will not be fulfilling any party duties. He's not going to sit on committees for the NDP. He's not going to represent the party in question period. And this is a relatively big one. Weir, I think, was a potential candidate for leader of the Saskatchewan NDP at one point before he jumped to federal politics. And I think he's been involved in the CCPA. He's got a good economics background. And so we see this pattern really just run across the political spectrum it's people who get in a position of power and it might go to their head and they feel they can get away with things that aren't okay the may ones are interesting because they're slightly different against a woman but i know there is a lot of discontent within the green party at the federal level because there's been a lot of focus on elizabeth may's riding and really bolstering that fortress possibly to the detriment of the Green Party in other constituencies across the country. And how long will that last? She's also been party leader for quite a few years now. She's the most senior of party leaders, not just in terms of age, but in terms of how long she's been in the post. And that kind of complacency can be tough. That's not to say she creates a toxic works environment or not. The only time I've ever met her, she's been a lovely human being but things can always be different behind the scenes and people can get different impressions. So these are all serious allegations and they're things we're going to have to keep watching. I imagine we're going to keep hearing more of these. There's always rumors about people at every level of politics, frankly, in the BC legislature, in the municipal councils, probably across the province. I'm hoping we'll start to see a shift. The backlash is a bit disappointing, but at least it's mostly centered on the usual suspects and the party apparatus in almost every case here seems to be functioning as we'd hope it would, that it would take these allegations seriously, put them to an independent inquiry, and try to get to as close as we can get to the truth without having to go through a full criminal trial, which has a very different standard of evidence. There's been some good pieces by friend of the pod, Michael Spratt, and even Jagmeet Singh said some of these things I think we referenced last week about just the standard of presumption of innocence in court moves is a very specific thing. The approach we need to take in politics can be very different. We should be expecting people who want to be political leaders to be above reproach, at least, or aiming for that. Just because you didn't rape someone doesn't mean you can be a skeezy asshole. So hopefully, we're seeing a new dawn in Canadian politics, where we start to move towards a cleaner, more welcoming situation. But we'll keep our eye on it. Since Scott's not here, I'm going to run through quick takes fairly quickly, but just felt like giving my own opinion on them this week. The first big news in BC this week was George Heyman's announcement that BC is going to be restricting shipments of diluted bitumen through the province. This is, I think, a clever strategy on the government's part to try to fulfill their we're going to do everything we legally can to stop Kinder Morgan pipelines, since that would be a massive increase in diluted bitumen going through BC. But already, Rachel Notley and the Alberta NDP have gone apocalyptic and threatened a trade war. They've said this is an unconstitutional move. She says she's going to sue Alberta right away. Jason Kenney says she already should have. I don't know that that's how that works. BC's holding strong and saying, look, this is just another assessment. We want to make sure everything that goes through the province is safe. And it's hard to know where this will go, but it's interesting to see that as soon as Notley had won the trade war to the east against the license plates. She's now got to face off threatening British Columbia. Meanwhile, the BC Liberal leadership race is this weekend, so potentially by the time you're hearing this, it may already be over, but we've had a couple pieces of news. The big one was Todd Stone's campaign was accused of illegally signing up people in the BC Liberal leadership race. for the other candidates in the race, Andrew Wilkinson, Michael Lee, Diane Watson, Mike DeYoung, wrote a letter to the Rules Committee and Executive Council, of the BC Liberals, what exactly was going on with the allegations against Todd Stone and illegal signups. And they said, if we don't hear back from you quickly, we'll leak this to the media. And they did. And Keith Baldry wrote it up for Global News. It's not clear who's in the right, who's in the wrong. These threats and allegations seem to come up around many of the leadership races. I know there were suggestions in the federal NDP race, there were suggestions in the federal conservative race. Ultimately, it'll probably be negligible, especially since a lot of the new sign-ups don't end up voting. So it is a sign of the heated nature of this debate and potentially who the campaign see as the front runner, as why they'd go after him. You, know, you don't say someone's illegally signing up too many members if you think they're in last place. No one's going to accuse Sam Sullivan of that, for example. So ultimately, I think this will probably turn into nothing. What is also hanging over the BC Liberal leadership race is this week, Brian Bonney was sentenced following his conviction in the Quickwin scandal from 2013. So Bonney was the public servant who was convicted following the 2013 election scandal where Christy Clark and the BC Liberals sought to use government data in the BC Liberal fundraising and targeting get-out-the-vote initiatives in ethnic communities specifically and the Chinese-Canadian community and try to really win them using that government information over to the BC Liberal side. This is a scandal because government staff can't do work for partisan political parties and it came out pretty scathingly in the judge's sentencing as he said things like Based on an April 2012 email Mr. Bonney wrote, he said he was complaining that he has a full-time job with the government but is being overwhelmed with emails from the minister's office, the BC Liberal Party caucus, and individuals associated to the premier's office. So this shows pretty much how deep this was going. This wasn't just a few government staffers who felt like they really wanted the liberals to win, which was the case because the judge also says he simply believed the Liberal Party with their free enterprise agenda was the only party that could effectively govern and that essentially the ends justified the clandestine, partial, and dishonest means he was engaged in. So it's not just the bureaucrats were on the liberal side, but the liberals were actively pushing the bureaucrats to help them. Now, the sentence is ultimately just nine months, mostly home arrest and with a tight curfew, which seems a bit like a slap on the wrist, but it is a big sign to sentence a government staffer for something like this. It just feels a bit lacking when when no one from the Liberal Party themselves is facing any punishment yet. But it's not really good news for the BC Liberals a few days before they go into a leadership vote, This obviously hurts the Mike DeYoungs and Andrew Wilkinsons who were in cabinet at the time more than perhaps the Michael Lees or Diane Watts who weren't and aren't tainted by that same scandal. It's still hard to tell if this is really going to land or hit the BC public or the BC Liberal membership that much. It was almost five years ago now, so the attention being paid to it is probably nowhere near as high. And there's also a new government, so I'm not sure this will really stick with any of the establishment BC Liberal candidates. And finally, Justice Trudeau thinks he won't actually be living in 24 Sussex Drive throughout any point of the remainder of his first term in office, at least. The Prime Minister's traditional house was described by Catherine Tunney in the CBC as the deteriorating, mouse-infested, hydro-draining, and off-spoofed official residence of Canada's head of government, but it's in dire need of repairs. It hasn't had a major renovation in like 50 years, and in 2008, a decade ago, the Auditor General said it needed about $10 million in repairs, and if you put off $10 million worth of repairs for another 10 years, I can't imagine that makes it cheaper, and the house has basically been unlivable since Harper left, and that's not his fault that sort of everyone over the last three prime ministers haven't maintained this house because they've prioritized austerity effectively over maintaining the building that does belong to the people rather than the prime minister. So what really gets me on this is Trudeau is still continuing to refuse to put any money into fixing 24 Sussex. The NDP and Conservatives have both said they would pass a bill or pass spending measures to authorize the repair of this, but Trudeau doesn't think it's an appropriate use of taxpayer funds. But it's 24 Sussex, so if an earthquake hits Ottawa, which is near an earthquake zone, and crumbles our prime minister's house, I think we're going to be kind of grumpy, since we don't have a lot of nice old buildings in this country. So it's a really frustrating and puzzling decision not to put a bit of money, and it's not even that much at a federal government level. At the same time, the House is still costing us tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in hydro bills and in maintenance just to keep it at the deteriorated, rat-infested stage it's at. It reminds me that a couple years ago there was talk about the B.C. legislature building, the B.C. Parliament, and the decrepit state it was in, and how a light earthquake could probably knock it down. But we did manage to get the parliamentarians to come around and agree to fix the damn thing. So hopefully Trudeau can wise up and fix the house that belongs to us and not just him. Well, and in a shortened Best of BC Poly for this week, I have a couple nominations to read out. I liked at Mike Smith News who tweeted out, NDP and libs blame each other for ICBC mess. I asked NDP's David Eby to appear on my radio show today. He said yes. I asked liberals Todd Stone, Mike DeYoung, Andrew Wilkinson, and Yon Jap to come on. They all said no. Hashtag BCPolly. ICBC's an utter disaster right now and a financial time bomb that's starting to go off. And it's not surprising that the liberals who've had a lot of internal debate about who knew what when, especially Mike DeYoung, Don't want to talk about it. But speaking of Mike DeYoung, he got quite a bit of interest on Twitter this week. For his tweet, I am lucky to have so much support on this campaign, which he tweeted out in both English and Chinese, hashtag BCPoly, hashtag BCLib. But the fantastic part is the poster that came along with it, which is in Chinese and has his first choice Mike DeYoung and all his endorsers. And there's a picture of Mike with his fist going into his hand and he's wearing a traditional Chinese red robe that someone described to me as, it looks like his face was photoshopped onto this body. And so we'll tweet that out from the pod account. But the follow-ups to that were fantastic. At Donut Shorts tweeted, can't make it up with periods after each word. And at Kelly underscore BC underscore CA tweeted, between De Young's attire and pose, I honestly don't know who he would not offend, hashtag quick wins, hashtag appropriation, hashtag RichmondBC. Good try, Mike. I know what you were trying to go for, but man, it's a bad poster. So make sure to nominate tweets for next week's show by tweeting out hashtag bestofbcpoly or DMing them to us. And that's been Politicoast. Find links to the stories we mentioned in show notes at politicos.ca. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Pod leave us a review and let us know what you think. Support the show and get early access to our interviews at patreon.com slash politicoast. And if you have any ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening.